This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. We are continuing our conversation today on understanding the heart with Dr. Stephen Hussey. If you did not listen to part one, I would encourage you to do that, where we talked about the evolution of heart disease and the heart and its different malfunctions. Now we're going to discuss what makes a healthy heart and a healthy heart diet, uh, how to appropriately exercise and things like that. We're also going to discuss some biometric tracking uh, of the heart, and that's going to include heart rate variability. I've talked a little bit about heart rate variability in the past as it relates to the whoop strap, which can record heart rate variability. And so if you want more information about that, you can go back and listen to my podcast about whoop. And uh, if you want a whoop strap, you can use my code. Just go to join.whoop.com slash fitrx. So we are now going to start where we left off with Dr. Stephen Hussey on understanding the heart. Well, uh, moving on to kind of the third part, which is probably what everybody wants to know. And hopefully they're still with us because I know we've kind of got in depth uh, into some stuff, but it's basically how to have a healthy heart. And so you talk about the real heart healthy diet. So how do we eat, uh, keep a healthy heart? And this uh, this again, uh, kind of goes opposite of what we're told. We're told that, uh, saturated fat, red meat, um, there's things that, that potentially could raise LDL, um, are what we need to avoid to prevent heart disease. However, again, like I, like I said earlier, those foods have been in our diets for, um, you know, as modern humans, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, and heart disease is, is an old disease. It was definitely present in ancient Egypt, which in ancient Egypt, the culture was not to eat a lot of saturated fat and animal foods, yet they still had heart disease. Um, but even more recently, like in the numbers that we see it today, it's only about a hundred years old, you know, to, to see it in these epidemic or numbers. So we have to ask ourselves what changed, you know, um, red meat's been there the whole time. Um, so, so what has changed? And, and the truth is, is that it's the vegetable oils and the processed carbohydrates um, and things like that, those are the real drivers of heart disease because they create a state of insulin resistance. Um, and that's what causes atherosclerosis and just, um, you know, increased weight gain and, and things like that. Um, and so in the book, the chapter on diet is, is there's a lot of it that focuses on the benefits, um, you know, the nutrients found in red meat that are beneficial for heart health. And so there's actually nutrients found in animal products that are not found uh, in high amounts or at all in the plant kingdom uh, that are extremely beneficial to the heart. Uh, things like carnitine and carnosine and taurine, uh, things like that are, are these are, um, you know, s specific pretty much to animal foods. And they've been shown to 
increase the function of the heart, increase the um, efficiency of the heart tissue um, to, to help the tissue repair when there has been a heart attack. It's just like, why would a food with all these heart healthy nutrients also be killing us? It just doesn't make sense. And we should talk about, you know, the, the research as far as diet research and how it's done and, and how it's epidemiology, which can't really prove anything. And so when you do uh, an epidemiology study and it shows an association between red meat and heart disease, it cannot take into account the fact that people who, um, uh, who have been listening to the guidance of, you know, the, the academic institutions and government agencies that say limit red meat, they're listening to that guidance and they're probably more into their health because they're, they're trying to do things so uh, healthy by listening to that guidance. So, so they're also more likely to exercise and not smoke and not drink and reduce their stress and, and limit toxin exposure and that kind of stuff. And so was it, was it the not eating red meat that, that caused their decreased risk or decreased heart disease, or was it all the other healthy behaviors they were doing? And then vice versa, you can't account for the fact that there are some people who, who eat more red meat and they're not paying attention to those guidelines because they're eating more red meat. And so those are people who are less likely to be doing healthy behaviors. They're more likely to smoke, drink, not manage their stress, that kind of stuff, because they're not into health. And so with these types of studies, you can't, you can't um, flush that out. You can't flush out those differences. That's the, that's the downfall of epidemiological studies. And I'd say 95% of our um, dietary guidelines from academic institutions and government agencies are based off those types of studies. Um, and so it, we've really gotten it all wrong. And, and the, the best diet is a whole foods diet. It's, it's getting away from the processed foods like vegetable oils and processed carbohydrates and things. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. So uh, just to nail you down a little bit more, if somebody asks you, you know, what's, what's the best diet, you know, that I could eat, you know, to, to prevent heart disease? Are you just going to say a whole food diet or are you going to say more kind of the higher fat, you know, lower carb type of a diet, you know, paleo is of course more whole food. Would you go to carnivore? I've talked about carnivore on here a little bit, you know, what, what would you say to, to that? If, if I'm talking about specifically heart disease, I'd say any diet that makes you metabolically flexible mm -hmm. and doesn't leave you nutrient deprived. A diet that creates metabolic flexibility to me is a whole food diet. Now, sometimes you have to restrict carbohydrates, depending on where you started your health journey from, you have to restrict carbohydrates for a good while to get metabolically healthy. Yeah. And then you can add whole food carbohydrates back in and stay metabolically healthy. Um, but some people can just go whole foods and include whole food carbohydrates, which they're, you know, not too many of them, but there's some, um, and, and get metabolic health. And, and I always say, you know, um, you know, whole food diet that doesn't leave you nutrient deprived because that, because I don't think a vegan diet is good. Um, and so it's a whole food diet and there's plenty of examples in the research where someone goes from a standard American diet to a vegan diet and they get metabolically healthy, but at the long term, it's going to leave them nutrient deprived. Um, and that's the issue there because that's can lead to all kinds of, uh, uh, diseases down the road. So. So yeah, I'd say a whole food diet. And if they don't know what that means, then I would explain that to them, you know, what that means, a whole food diet uh, basically means getting rid of these, you know, Franken foods that we've only introduced into our society in the last 150 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. One, one ingredient foods is what I tell people. <laughs> mm. Yeah. There you go. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's great. I think it's great advice. Um, you know, the only reason why I lean more towards a, you know, kind of a keto type of a diet is just because of the people that I see. And I kind of probably see a skewed population because I'm a family practice doctor, but the majority of patients that I see start off insulin resistant, um, overweight. Uh, and, and so we've got to reduce those carbs drastically to get them to the point where they're metabolically flexible. Uh, and then once we get to that point, then yeah, I think you can add in carbs, but just eat more of a whole food type of diet. Yeah. I don't overdo the carbs. Okay. Well, uh, and then, so that's the diet you talk about, um, uh, you know, we talked about oxidative stress a little bit, but obviously if we're wanting to reduce heart disease, we have to reduce oxidative stress. And so other than eating a whole food diet, um, what are some ways we can reduce ox oxidative stress? Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways oxidative, set, oxidative stress is created is, is through our metabolism. And that's just a kind of a byproduct of our metabolism, kind of like our exhaust, you know, but that's a necessary part of things. But then the other aspect is external, you know, uh, environmental stimuli. Um, and so this largely comes in the form of um, toxins in our environment, man-made toxins. And, you know, this is, you know, a topic that can go on forever and ever. Um, and so it's important to realize that we can't control everything. We can't eliminate all these um, sources of toxins, but to be aware of them and eliminate the ones you can is, is pretty important. And so we're talking about toxins that may come in food, um, whether that's sprayed on them, you know, with pesticides and herbicides and things like that, or toxins made by the food, um, water, making sure we're drinking clean sources of water, uh, air, we're breathing clean air, um, cosmetics, cleaning products, just making sure that all those things that come in contact with your body um, are, are the least toxic forms available. Um, because again, your body's pretty good at detoxing these things, but these days we're so bombarded with them all the time that um, uh, it can become overwhelming and we can kind of get a backup of this. And then the other thing is, is yeah, managing stress because that's going to definitely lead to free radical production. Um, all those things combined, you know, uh, is, is leads to a state of oxidative stress. Uh, do you, do you have a, an opinion as far as other than food, what is the biggest um, kind of outside stressor of our environment that's going to uh, cause oxidative stress? It's hard to say like specifically one toxin, but, but BPA is pretty big uh, or plasticizers in general, just because something says BPA free does not mean that it's, it's not going to harm you because they have to use it as a plasticizer no matter what. And it's just as harmful to use BPS or BPZ or something. Um, but also heavy metals. I think heavy metals are pretty big because uh, that could be directly in your teeth. It could be aluminum pots and pans, could be mercury in the fish. Uh, and there are studies that show directly that BPA and heavy metals can um, increase the amounts of them in our body leads to increased um, um, prevalence of atherosclerosis. Yeah. Which I'm sure is uh, one of the reasons, I mean, I'm sure there are several reasons, but one of the reasons why the, the regular use of sauna uh, decreases mm. the risk for cardiovascular disease is because you're getting rid of those, um, you know, those, those toxins from sweating, um, therefore probably reducing some of the oxidative stress, I would imagine. So exactly. Yeah. But, um, okay. So um, you talk about achieving autonomic balance and structuring water. And so what, what does that mean? Yeah. So, um, structuring water is just, you know, applying that energy to the body. And it turns out that lots of the things that structure water in our bodies are also create autonomic balance. They also increase vagal tone or parasympathetic activity. Um, so those are things like grounding, walking barefoot on the earth or, or getting exposure to the sun, 
um, you know, uh, those are those directly structure water, but then they also put us in a state where we, your body feels like it's safe. It gets these safe signals, um, which balances the autonomic nervous system. Um, but then there's all kinds of, of other ways that we can help create balance in our autonomic nervous system, stimulate that parasympathetic activity like meditation uh, or any type of mindfulness practice, really um, exercise or um, breathing techniques and breath work, that kind of stuff. Um, but also having positive social relationships uh, and, uh, you know, um, controlling those, those stresses that make us feel out of control, you know, and mitigating those um, uh, things like that. And, and the list goes on and on. People who even like, you know, do cold plunges and, um, and uh, hot, cold therapy, um, infrared sauna, um, all kinds of stuff that people can do. And, um, you know, I list as many as I, I can, at least the ones that are, I feel most effective um, in the book, but uh, yeah, really, really important. But I also think it's important just to, to reiterate that, um, you know, you can be doing all these things, but if you're not removing the stressors that are creating imbalance in the first place, or the way of life that's creating balance in the first place, you're just piling things on without correcting the underlying cause. Like, you know, you're, you're, um, you're putting out all the fires without catching the arsonist, you know? Yep. For sure. Okay. Uh, and so you talk about heart healthy exercise. Um, I, you know, I think the most important thing in that is just to move because so I many people just don't move enough, but, but outside of just, you know, getting up off the couch and moving, you know, in, in your opinion, what is the best form of exercise to have a healthy heart? Yeah. And, and I think that there's, um, and I take some heat for this because there's lots of like long distance, uh, cardio people who, who really feel that it's best. And I have nothing against cardiovascular types of exercise, like, you know, running and, or jogging and things like that. Um, but I, but it's the long endurance types of exercise that I have an issue with. And I, I list lots of studies in the book that suggest why, you know, doing a marathon may not be the best thing for us. Um, and, um, and I, I kind of detail the mechanisms of the, how that is, um, cause it creates imbalance in, in some of these systems we're talking about. Um, and so then we look at what is the most helpful. Um, and it seems to be that exercise that maintains our muscle mass. Um, so resistance exercise, but also burst training, um, because that's been shown to be really effective for boosting the number of mitochondria in our, in our bodies. And that's going to lead to more insulin sensitivity, um, and more efficiency of mitochondria in the heart and in skeletal muscle, um, which are all things that are incredibly beneficial, uh, for preventing heart disease. So I'm more of a fan of like burst training and strength training, but you know, my workouts look like, you know, I'm, I'm barefoot in the yard doing walking lunges and, and pushups and, and sprints and, and things like that. Um, that's, uh, those are my workouts. Um, I go to the gym occasionally, but, uh, I like to, I like to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. Uh, so you talk about dental health and, and the, the connection there to your heart. So talk about that a minute. Yeah. And this is a, uh, a big one because it's not often thought about, you know, that the health of our mouth could have a direct impact on our risk for heart disease. Um, and so there, there are a few things here. One is that, uh, lots of people have mercury fillings or amalgam fillings, you know, the silver type fillings. Um, and those things, you know, will off gas and, and leach right into our, our bodies. And we already talked about how heavy metals are potentially problematic as far as atherosclerosis goes. 
Um, and so, you know, finding a dentist that can properly remove those and put in a, a, a safer type filling is a good idea. But there's also this, um, this concept of what's called endotoxemia. Um, and this is the presence of, of bacteria uh, in the bloodstream that should not be there. Um, so this happens when we get like leaky gut and the bacteria from the, the GI system leaks into the bloodstream. But it can also happen when we have gum disease um, or when we have um, maybe root canals or teeth that have been pulled uh, that weren't cleaned out properly. Uh, these types of things can, can result in you know, infections, chronic infections in the mouth and the jaw that can leach into the tissues. Um, and the evidence behind this, the research behind this is, is pretty, um, uh, pretty well established. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a wonder, I wonder why uh, more dentists don't know about this and, and, and address this in their, in their practice. So if people have that kind of stuff going on, uh, if they've had pulled teeth and they, they fear they weren't cleaned out properly or they have root canals and, you know, get to a dentist that, that knows what they're doing. If you, if you type in your search bar, like dentist um, cavitation or dentist toxic root canals, you'll, you'll probably find a place that, that knows what they're doing. Okay. Um, and so what's the best way to kind of track our heart health? You talk about some biometrics and, and tracking your risk. Uh, what would you recommend there? Yeah, I think the, um, the best things that are going to help us understand our risk is, is the things that measure those three imbalances. So whether or not we're metabolically healthy, how much inflammation and oxidative stress we have, and then balance in our autonomic nervous system. So the best markers, I think, for, for metabolic health are the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Um, also getting like a fasting insulin score and calculating like a or fasting insulin level and calculating like a insulin resistance score. Um, I think that's really important, but also, um, uh, you can, you can track ketones, you know, if you, if you are on a very low carb diet or even people who have some carbohydrates, you know, if you, if you eat a fair amount of carbohydrates in your meal and you wake up from your fast, um, the next day and you have ketones present, you're very likely metabolically healthy. Um, so that kind of stuff. Um, and then as far as inflammation, um, you can, or, or oxidative stress, you could measure, Things like high sensitivity to C-reactive protein is kind of a good general marker of inflammation in the body, but you can get real specific and measure things like um, GGT, which is a liver enzyme that um, you know kind of assesses oxidative stress in the liver. You could measure direct, you know, oxidative stress damage by lipid peroxides or um, isoprostanes or um, DNA damage um, uh, through various markers. So you can get really in depth with it, but C-reactive protein is probably a good um, general starting point there to measure that inflammation. And then balancing the autonomic nervous system, I'd say the, the best thing we have for this is heart rate variability. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's something that you can get devices, you know, like whether it's the Aura Ring or, or Fitbits or whatever, they, lots of different things, you know, will measure your heart rate variability. But it's, it's a good thing to track because if you don't know what your baseline is and what your, your normal numbers are and how they fluctuate, you don't really know how certain new stresses that come into your life are affecting you. Um, but heart rate variability is, is underutilized, um, but is, is clearly the, the best measure of balance in our autonomic nervous system. So getting, getting an idea of those three things is, is, a, is a good idea. Uh, so what's your opinion on people getting uh, like heart scans to check, you know, calcium scores and things like that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, CAC score is, is a useful tool. I mean, all these things are just tools that we can use. But a CC score measures, you know, you know, long-term like calcified 
plaques. So things that have been there for a while, the body decide to, decide to calcify them. Um, it's not necessarily going to tell us too much about like newly formed soft plaques, which are the more dangerous ones. Um, but it does give you an idea of how well you've been doing, you know, for a long time. And, and if you get, you know, multiple points of a CAC score, like over the years, then yeah, you can see where you're trending. Right. Um, but if, but if you, if you just have one, uh, like I see this all the time, people get like one score and it's, you know, 200 uh, and they say, well, I've been changing things. Why is it still 200 or, or whatever number they get? And I say, well, that's just one, that's just one data point. You know, how do you know that, you know, before you started changing things, it wasn't 400 uh, and that kind of stuff. And so it, it, it's more useful to have like multiple data points of that, but it is a good thing to look at. You know, you can see where you're at, you know, um, but again, it can't really tell you about those more dangerous, unstable ones. You need like a, an invasive procedure, you know, angiogram for that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think they're useful. Okay. So next part of your book is, uh, something called two-faced medicine, which, uh, is, is very interesting. And so if you will, uh, and you kind of had your own personal, um, journey. So if, if you'll just kind of talk about that and, and then just what you mean by two-faced medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So earlier this year, really early in the year, like the first week of January, um, I actually had a pretty substantial heart attack, uh, which totally caught me off guard. Um, and, uh, you know, I was taken to the hospital and they, uh, they went in and they, uh, they found a clot, uh, in, uh, the left anterior descending artery. And they, uh, the, the, um, cardiologist told me that he dissolved the clot. And I told him, well, like how the arteries look and everything. And, said there was minimal to no atherosclerosis in the arteries. Um, almost as if, uh, you know, uh, the clot just kind of spontaneously formed or maybe, maybe where it was, there was a small amount of atherosclerosis and that, that ruptured, but, um, he said it was pretty, pretty unremarkable. Um, and so they put the stint in and, um, and, and here I am laying in the cardiac ICU wondering, what the heck just happened and how could this happen to me after everything I do and what I've looked at. And, and I, I ultimately decided that I was going to not publish the book um, because I, I, I didn't know what to think at that point, even though I was really through everything I put in the book um, in my head, I was reeling through all of it. And I, I couldn't think of anything I would change my mind on based on this happening. And, um, but I decided, you know, I, I just, I didn't think I could do it. And, uh, but then, you know, what kind of, what happened the three days I was in the hospital, um, changed my mind because I was, I was confronted with, um, how bad things actually were, I think, or actually are in, in that setting. And I, I determined that the information in the book just, it needed to be out there for people who may be in this situation, like I was, um, or have been in that situation and are trying to recover, um, or just trying to prevent in general. I mean, the amount of, I'd say, shutdown of conversation that happened. Um, anytime I tried to question them, like, why did this happen? Or why am I taking this medication? Or why do you want me to take that medication? Or um, even, the, even the failure of them to, to help me manage my type 1 diabetes while I was in there, because they wouldn't let me do it myself. Um, they just, you know, they basically took control of it. And my blood sugars were 300 for three days. And they would not uh, they would not help me bring it down, even though I knew how to do that because I've been doing this for 25 years. Like 
all these things from even from what they recommended for me to eat to prevent heart failure and prevent this from happening again. It was just, it was a processed food diet is what they told me to eat. And, and so there was just failure after failure after failure. And every time I would, would question the decision or not a decision, but like a recommendation or just even ask for more information about why that was their approach. Um, I just got to shut down a conversation. Um, they would either, they would either, tell me I was wrong or they would just walk out of the room without finishing the conversation. Um, and so I, I don't think that that is a bad, a bad, it's not like that there were bad people. Um, I just think that they knew one way of doing things. And after someone has a heart attack, there's a cookie cutter way of doing or of approaching that. And that's what they were trying to do. And I just had questions and concerns about it and wanted more information. Cause at this point I was open to taking medications. I was, I was wanting my heart to recover as best as it could. If there was data that suggested that that was the best way to do it. And that's all I was asking for. Um, and it wasn't provided and they never really gave me a good reason why they thought this happened. Um, they just said, Oh, it's probably your LDL. And um, you know, there's, there's a really interesting study that shows that, what your LDL is at the time of a hospital admission for a heart attack is pretty much irrelevant. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so the idea, like I would even entertain that that was a possibility, but we already talked about it. it's only that when damage happens to the LDL that it's an issue, but nobody wanted to check that. No, no test was ever done to assess damage to LDL while I was in the hospital. Um, and so I'm looking at all these things and just, incredibly disappointed. Um, and it's worse than I thought, I think. Uh, and, and so I decided to publish the book because I, I feel like the information needs to get out there. And, um, I detailed, you know, my experiences in the hospital and, and, and what I think happened to, to, um, to me, uh, and why it happened in, in the afterward, um, in the hopes that people can learn from it. Yeah. So why do you think it happened? I mean, obviously you're a, you said you're a type one diabetic, um, mm. but other than that, it sounds like, I mean, if you follow all these things, sounds like you live a pretty healthy lifestyle. So, uh, in, in your mind, why do you think it happened? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I had been diligent, like those markers that they didn't take in the hospital, like inflammation to cholesterol and inflammation to lining the arteries. I'm pretty diligent about taking those myself, um, prior to this, like, a, and I had a CAC score of zero, um, you know, six months prior to, um, uh, the heart attack. So, yeah, I was left wondering why. And, you know, 2020 was, was stressful for a lot of people um, and it, me included. And I think that lots of the things that were going on in 2020 um, kind of built up and they kind of built up in a sneaky kind of way. And I never really thought they were affecting me that much. I'm a pretty, uh, pretty even keel guy. You wouldn't be able to tell that I was under stress because I just, I hide it. Um, uh, I have kind of the same facial expression, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I had, one of the main things was that um, my wife had been working in England for uh, two years prior to my heart attack because um, she got a great job opportunity and we were doing long distance. And uh, in 2019, we were flying back and forth. No problem. It was actually kind of fun because I got to go to Europe a few times. And then in 2020, that all stopped. And it wasn't just that it stopped. It was that the pandemic kept dragging on and and it was like, okay, now our next trip to see each other is canceled. Okay, now the next one is. And we were just waiting to see when I'd see her again. And, and I didn't know when that was going to be. Um, I'd also worked pretty hard to establish, you know, this career podcasting, getting on the speaking circuit, going to events like that. And all those events were canceled. I had like five 
um, scheduled. And so that was disappointing. And again, I felt like, you know, I was losing control of that career. I'd worked hard to create. And then, you know, I got, I got a little too caught up in the election and, and things that were happening at that time, which is not really like me. Um, but for some reason, I think with the pandemic and the election, I just kind of got caught up into it. And usually I don't even care about that stuff. And then a day and a half before the heart attack, I got some, um, some really, uh, upsetting uh, news about a close family member, which I won't reveal the details of, but um, the only detail I will reveal is that we weren't able to help this person, uh, my family and I. Uh, they were in a situation that they were on their own. And so, you know, that day between when I heard the news and when I had the heart attack, I was basically trying to figure out a way to help the situation. And I couldn't, to no avail, I couldn't find a way to do it. Um, and I, I woke up a day and a half later that Tuesday morning and, and had a heart attack. And so when I think about all that and how, you know, stress has been shown to, uh, it's highly correlated with, with heart attack, um, but also with increased clotting factors in the blood um, and um, vascular damage um, directly from stress, then to me, that's what makes the most sense considering what I was going through. And all those situations have improved since then. So I'm happy to say, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's how I can make sense of it. Giving what my blood work showed. I mean, I think there was a, an aspect of being type one diabetic for 25 years and the first half of those years, not well controlled. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, didn't figure that out until, till I grew up, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's my best guess. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, how you're balancing, you know, now, uh, you know, the, the recommendations from, you know, the conventional medicine versus kind of what, you know, to, you know, to be true. And when you go, you know, mm -hmm. for your follow-ups to see your cardiologist, I mean, are you doing what they recommend or how, how are you balancing all that? Yeah, no, excellent question. Um, yeah. So I ultimately, you know, after talking to, um, doctors in the hospital, but also I've, I've consulted with other cardiologists, um, uh, who are more in the know, I would say ab about these things about that we're talking about, you know, um, I, I would, I talked with them and I ended up taking, um, a blood thinner because mm -hmm. there's a stat or there's a stint in my body and, and that's not usually there. So, um, but I'm only going to be taking that for a little bit while longer. Um, and then I was at first taking a blood pressure medication, um, lisinopril and, um, but I stopped taking that after about a month. And, uh, and cause I, cause I learned that, I finally learned from the doctors that the reason they wanted me, because I didn't understand why they wanted me on it. My blood pressure was fine, mm -hmm. um, but they wanted me on it because they were trying to take pressure off of the heart to prevent cardiac remodeling. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, oh, well, I can do that with the sauna. Um, so I increased my sauna um, uh, uh, therapy or th sauna use. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm doing that and, um, and I'm taking uh, a few supplements that increase um, like I mentioned, those, those nutrients and animal foods that help with cardiac remodeling, cardiac repair. Um, I'm taking a few supplements of those just to boost my availability of them. I'm still on an animal-based diet. Uh, and then, uh, magnesium. I'm also taking something called Wabine, which is, uh, helps increase the parasympathetic signaling to the heart, um, to, to help with that. Um, and you know, at my three month follow-up, um, this is, this is updates that, that aren't in the book. Um, my, uh, 
my heart function um, had pretty much fully recovered. Uh, it was after the heart attack, my ejection fraction was down to 35 to 40%. Um, and now it's up to 50 to 55%, which is within the normal range, like the low end of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I expect that'll go up even more, um, maybe at the six month mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the septum between the two ventricles was the tissue that was damaged, um, mostly. And, um, they, they described it as severely akinetic and at the three month echocardiogram, it was mildly hypokinetic. That's how they, they put it. So I'm, I'm well on the way to recovery, um, without the medications, not that I'm saying everybody should do that. Everybody should talk to their doctor, you know, but, um, but yeah, that's my, my unconventional approach seems to be working, um, quite well. And so is your, is your cardiologist when you go back now, I mean, and you say, Hey, I'm eating mostly a meat-based diet. Uh, I'm not taking my, my medications is, are they okay with that? No, they're not. Um, we agree to disagree. Um, uh, and you know, luckily I, I happened to, to go to one after this happened that, mm-hmm. that seemed to accept that he didn't agree with it, but he just kind of accepted. That's what I'm going to do. I don't know how he really felt or what he was thinking in his head, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's kind of the way it is. And, and, you know, when I got the three month echo, I asked him, you know, how normal that was like for someone to recover, uh, in that time period. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not a cardiologist. I don't work with people who have had heart attacks. Um, and they said, that's pretty quick. Um, so I, I was pleased with that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, they, they don't really know what to do. You know, I've gotten to the point though, that where if they say I should do something, I say, can you provide me the evidence of why I should do that? And either they're unwilling or they just don't do it. Cause they say, yeah. And then I never get anything from them. Yeah. You know, Cause I'm just, that's, I'm, I'm that type of guy. It's not that I don't believe them or believe that they're good people or whatever. It's just sure. that I want to see the data. Yeah. Um, like they tried to tell me the results of my original echo after the cardio uh, after heart attack. And I was like, can you show me the video? Can you show me the recordings and tell me what you're looking at and everything? And they were just like, uh, why? And I was like, cause I, I want to know the information. And so, um, yeah, it, I've gotten to the point where I just ask them up front, Hey, can you prove it to me? You know? Right. So what's, what's been the overall response to your book in the conventional medical uh, medical community. I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, especially with your experience in the hospital. But have you had any any kind of feedback or response from kind of more traditional doctors? You know, not yet. I don't know that it's I don't know that it's penetrated their their arena yet. Gotcha. Um, I hope that it does, and and I hope that at least some of them read it and even if they disagree with some of it or most of it, they pick up something that maybe changes the way they, they practice or, or, or at least investigate and if they should change the way they practice. But um, I haven't really gotten any feedback from a, a traditional yeah. cardiologist or a traditional cardiac researcher or something like that. Yeah. Uh, my experience, and this is not to um, bad mouth, you know, anybody, but uh, my experience with specialists is they are some of the most closed minded people. When, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, so when it comes to just different ideas about the way we should eat or, you know, just different ideas about the way we should approach a particular illness, 
a lot of specialists are just very close-minded about it, even though our, you know, what I argue is our, you know, traditional approach doesn't work very well, uh, you know, and statistics kind of back that up, but they are so ingrained in that you just do it this way. You know, you don't ask questions, you just do it this way, kind of like the experience you had in the hospital, um, that it's, it's just kind of hard to penetrate the mind of a specialist in just opening up their mind to, to think outside the box. It's been my experience. Yeah, definitely. And, and oftentimes there's an appeal to authority, basically an appeal yep. to their authority, yep. you know, that's because true. they're the specialist. And so it, how could you know any other information that's better than theirs because they're the specialist yep. and, and, and I just have a fundamentally different way of moving through my life. You know, I'm a chiropractor. I'm supposed to be an expert in neuromusculoskeletal conditions, right? If someone came to me with an alternative theory of, of, of chiropractic or of treating these conditions, I'm open to it. I want to know about it. doesn't mean I'll agree with it, but I want to hear it out because I like learning. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, the more I know, the more I can help people. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, okay. Well, um, so I always close out by asking my guest if they could give us one health tip that could make us healthier today. What would you say to that? Commit to yourself today. You know, if you, if there's some change that you've been thinking about for months and months and months, and you just been putting it off like tomorrow, tomorrow, commit and, and start, start to take steps to, uh, to make that change happen. And, and also realize that it doesn't have to be that you wake up the next day and you automatically start doing it, or you automatically start doing it perfect. Because I tell clients all the time and patients all the time, I didn't wake up one day and start living my life the way I do. It's been a gradual process. So I don't expect you to just wake up tomorrow and be perfect. But if you, if you wake up and you commit to yourself that you're going to keep going one direction, then, then it's going to end up, you're going to end up there, but you just got to make the commitment first and the decision to change. Well, okay. Well, I really appreciate your time and just your expertise uh, on this subject. Very interesting. If people want to learn more, uh, then go read the book, Understanding the Heart. And I'm assuming they can get this on Amazon. Uh, Not currently, actually. It's I, I, uh, I got um, signed by a publisher. Okay. So they asked me that I take it down until we republish it. Um, So, so yeah, it will be available in the future. Um, and, uh, but the, the way people can kind of stay up to date on when it will be available, it's just, you know, uh, subscribe to my website or, or follow me on social media. I'll definitely be making sure people know when it's going to be available again. Okay. And, uh, if you will, uh, tell what your website is and your social media, uh, website is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, and my social media handle is just dr Stephen Hussey on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Perfect. Uh, well, Dr. Hussey, we appreciate your time and appreciate you guys listening. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com.